Hello there, we are your host Vivek and Pavitra from the Agile Coach Podcast. In this podcast, we bring fresh perspectives to you through our interviews with thought leaders in Agile Coaching, facilitation, business analysis, and product management roles. Enjoy! Hey everyone, we have Adam Miner back in the Agile Coach Podcast. Uh, probably a lot of you have heard uh, his podcast with Vivek uh, last time and we got a lot of good feedback. Uh, there were a lot of people that listened to it before their interviews, some people that are already in their role right now and got a lot of value out of the podcast So we wanted to invite you back and just uh, kind of continue where you guys maybe left off last, last time. Um, so yeah, this session, I just really want to uh, just have a conversation between two fellow Agilists and just kind of pick your brain on what you've been doing and uh, how have you really been uh, excelling as a Scrum Master in your role. So yeah, just to really in- reintroduce Adam a little bit, uh, if you guys are listening to him for the first time. Um, I know Adam comes from an athletic background, uh, degree in biology, worked in uh, finance for a little bit and found his way towards Scrum Master in the Agile space. Uh, I think really the various background uh, that you come from, Adam, really gives uh, you a space to step back and see things from different perspective and really sets you apart from a lot of the Scrum Masters that I've seen out there in the industry. Um, So yeah, thank you for coming back. Uh, Maybe we can just kind of start with, uh, you know, what do you like about being a, a Scrum Master? Yeah, I think just at like a, a core level, the values and the principles really spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coming from a background in athletics and, and having worked in some leadership roles in, in undergrad, just, you know, being involved in extracurriculars, I, I realized pretty early uh, on, and I think in my professional life, that collaboration and communication were, were pretty powerful. And then as I started to be exposed to Agile in 2015 and 2016, this idea of being a servant leader, uh, allowing teams to be self-organizing, making them make their own decisions, holding them accountable to their decisions, uh, even more powerful than that, the ability and the encouragement to be transparent in communication Mm. was something that I saw in athletics, but I didn't always see it professionally. Um, And I think that a lot of times you know, teams and organizations don't succeed in, in maybe what they're trying to accomplish because there's um, not that space to be open about what you're thinking, the space to be open about concerns. Um, so I really, as, I, as I've started to, to become more skilled, I think in a, as a scrum master over the last, you know, two, three, four years, um, empathy and transparency and openness are core competencies that I really try to live um, foundationally like in myself. And then what I found is that the teams will mature and follow the example that I said as I, as I work with them over several months. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that. I mean, I, I just remember learning about like agile and going into that scrum master space myself and just really loving the humanness part of like agility, like, you know, where people were told what to do, even though you hire all these developers who uh, have the expertise, like they're known to have the expertise, but then like somebody else who doesn't even probably know how to do their work comes and, you know, tells them like how to do it or what to do and and all that stuff. So I really, uh, really embrace that humanness and like giving that empowerment and people, when you ask the question, like, how would you solve it? What would you do in this case? It really gives people that, um, 
that chance to like provide value and people feel like they're being valued at work. Right. So, um, yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, you know, one of the things that I truly believe on being an effective coach or a scrub master really is, uh, it's all about self-mastery. Like how have you evolved? Right. Um, so what would you say? How have you, Adam, like evolved as a scrum master, as a coach uh, in the maybe like recently or just like in 60 to 90 days? Yeah, I think the skill set um, has had to change over the last 60 to 90 days. Mm-hmm. So when I when I started working with my current team, you know, about eight months ago, they were very dysfunctional. Um, they, they didn't have the ability to communicate with each other very well. So my strategy at that time was just, um, it was very basic. It was just Mm -hmm. trying to get them to coexist appropriately and respectfully, like in a team meeting. Um, but now that the, um, that we made progress and the team dynamic and the team is starting to bond and the chemistry is there. Now we can start to work a little bit more towards the more advanced agile techniques, which is cool. Mm I, I, one of the things, Papitra, I think that's helped me not just survive as a scrum master, but thrive as a scrum master. And even when compared to like some of my peers that have had more experience in the industry in terms of years is the dedication to self-development and personal growth outside of my nine to five. Mm. So my belief is that if a scrum master isn't reading books on communication and leadership and um, you know, emotional intelligence outside of their nine to five, they're not going to be as effective during the day as they would be had they put more effort into that on the side. And I think, you know, just some of the things that, that I've worked on, you know, the last six, 30, 60, 90 days, my soft skills and the mentoring um, piece of being a scrum master have now been tested. Yeah. Whereas up front, you're more of just the conflict, res- you know, resolution person setting up meetings and trying to put out fires. But yeah. now, um, as the team has started to mature and they've become um, respectful and they've learned how to be transparent and empathetic and that, that mm-hmm. chemistry is there, now I can be more hands-on with them one-on-one. And uh, a really cool example, just maybe like a month ago that I had was a developer that came to me and, and said, hey, Adam, like, um, I really want to help uh, some of my peers on the team improve. Mm-hmm. And I'm working with them. We're doing screen shares, but I don't feel like they're really understanding what I'm telling them. Um, you know, I'm asking, do you understand? And they keep telling, yes, yes, you know, I understand. Um, however, then they'll go back and, and make the same mistakes over and over again. And I said, well, just a suggestion, um, you know, you can, you can match it to your tone and your personality, but what I might recommend is changing the question. Mm. So instead of saying, do you understand? Ask, what do you understand right. of what I've just told you? <laughs> And that was, that's such a small difference, but I think the way you phrase that question can, mm-hmm. that's kind of the difference between a new leader or a good leader and a, an experienced leader and a great leader is asking the right questions in the right moment versus just keeping things surface level. Cool. Um, one of the things that like I've heard you, you know, talk about just like raising transparency um, and I mean, that's one of the, you know, core things in, in Agile Scrum, just like having that transparency. So how have you maybe created transparency with your team? Like, what are some things that you've done to create transparency? Yeah, I, I think number one is I have to be the 
um, the ultimate example of being transparent. Mm-hmm. So, and part of this, I think, is is about not necessarily playing the bureaucratic political game in organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm my personality and like my style with my teams is not to be this stubborn optimist. Yeah. <laughs> like if something is going wrong and it's on fire, like I'll empathize with that and I'll say, yeah, it's on fire. Like this is not a good situation to be in. Like right. I'm not the type to sit back and be like, oh, it's fine. We'll be fine. Everything's fine. No, it's like, and the team sees that. Mm-hmm. And this, the team will read that on me. So my ability to be honest and say, yeah, this is not a good situation. It sucks. We're going to get through it, but like, let's embrace it and like be okay. Um, and just, I, I like to level with them and be pretty honest yeah. about it and being transparent about like my fears and my weaknesses too, is, mm-hmm. is kind of part of that. Um, because if I'm not transparent with them about what I'm thinking and like my weaknesses, uh, apologizing is a big part of this and, and mm-hmm. owning up to a mistake is like, yeah. it shows a lot of humility, but then over time it sets the example for my team. And what's really cool now is that I'm seeing them do that for themselves. Whereas right. they wouldn't do that like six months ago, but because I've done that with them for six months and, and um, set the example, now they're doing it. Additionally, I think a good coach, maybe even a great coach will notice hesitancy in conversations and yeah. call that out. And I've had to do that over time. Now I don't necessarily have to do that as much because the team just trusts me and they're, they're okay being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But up front, I had to say, um, you know, hey, I, I, I could be way off base, but I'm, I'm noticing like a little bit of hesitancy. Mm-hmm. You know, I just want to let you know that this is, this is a safe space. Um, I'm not going to judge you for, mm-hmm. for what you say, but for, for us to make progress, um, you know, one-on-one here and as a team, I, I really just need you to give me like your honest thoughts about what's happening. Um, because if you don't, I can't help you appropriately. So I really need this to be like an open space to, to give honest thoughts with me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think the key takeaway there is one, like you got to show up where in a way you're okay to be vulnerable, right? And we talk about like leadership is about like leading from the front. It's not necessarily like you being a you embracing it, you being in the in the trenches with the people, right? So, I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, a scrum master or when you were a scrum master, it, it kind of almost seems like, oh, like you have all the answers. You're supposed to know everything or you're not supposed to like fail or um, like it looks bad if I'm failing or if I don't know the answer, right? Uh, like, I, I love that, that you've been able to just say, hey, like I made a mistake or like, hey, I, I don't know this. And not being able to like you, you not being able to, you not being afraid to fail because then like that shows that it's okay for them to fail. Like failure is accepted, right? Because like for most of us in like corporate world, like if you don't get something right or if you break the small code, then like, am I losing a job today, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so, so I love that, that you allow your team to like see you as you, as you, because we're all human and we all make mistakes and, uh, you know, end of the day, uh, we're, we're just trying to do the best we can with like what we know. So, yeah. Yeah. And every scrum master has a different style, right? I mean, my, my style, um, you know, whether it's a blessing or a curse, maybe both is that I'm, I'm stubbornly rigid about not giving my team answers, Mm. at least not until we have a dialogue about it. 
Like the ultimate, you know, outcome of a question might be that I give them the answer, but I want them to learn from the discussion first. Yeah. And, and I've butted heads with some leadership and management at times for being honest about, you know, the fact that I have no idea. I have to check with my team there. I have a team of experts that are in the code base. They're doing the testing. They know I, and and a big thing, Papitra is that I have the ultimate trust in my team. Mm. I trust them to get the job done and they don't always, sometimes they fail, Mm -hmm. but then it's a, it's an amazing opportunity to like ask them to learn Mm. from the mistake. And I've never found that teams learn if they're being micromanaged and controlled. They learn by finding their own way and making their own mistakes and then owning up to it, admitting that they made a mistake and then, you know, moving forward after that. Yeah. I mean, people, if, if it's their answer, people are most like most likely to follow it anyway. Right. Cause like a lot of times people ask for advice, but you know, how many people actually really follow the advice unless like it comes from their mouth. And I think being a coach, it's, it's about like facilitating some of those conversations or asking certain questions where they come up with their own answer. So then like, they're more likely to go and implement that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about influence. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a book that I had read years ago, how to win friends and influence people. They talk about this idea of there being no, no neutral interaction every day. (laughs) Every right. interaction from the first good morning to the last good night leaves someone else that you're interacted mm-hmm. with a little bit better, a little bit worse. Yeah. And I think combining that with this idea of that the leader can't lead until the led give the leader permission to lead mm-hmm. has allowed me more influence in my teams than maybe some of my peers that don't spend the time building those relationships yeah. and asking for permission to lead. Um, so again, something that it's a very subtle difference. Uh, but the team now has so much more respect for my, for my opinions and my, um, my guidance, because I've given them the space to make their own mistakes, um, and told them that I support them and that I'm proud of them and that I trust them on the front end. And and it's just a really cool relationship that now I'm finally starting to see the fruits of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think like the next question that I was going to ask you kind of have already touched on a little bit, which is really about like, how do you really build up or empower your, your teammates? Right. I think one of the things that you said, it's like, you let them figure out because then like when it's their answer, when you put them as an expert, like you are a developer, like there's certain things like you come, like you're the knowledge worker here. So really you're, you know, unlocking that out of them. Um, I guess, do you have any other things that maybe you've done to build up and empower your team members? Yeah, I think um, number one, I don't come from a developing development or like a technical background. So again, whether it's a blessing or a curse, I don't know, but I've found that my teams as a whole are stronger than some of my peers Mm -hmm. because I don't have the ability to give them technical guidance. Yeah. I've studied again, part the, the nice part about personal growth and self-development is that you have the ability to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. So the questions that I ask, get them to think. And I believe that thinking is probably the hardest work that there is, which is so why so few people engage in it. <laughs> so my, my like just straight up humble inability to not give guidance on technical problems has allowed my teams the space and the ability to be more self-organizing and come up with solutions on their own because I'm not leading them there. Yeah. Um, or leading them to the solution. And, and I think the other part of that too, is that the team needs to know that they're um, valued. So I'm mm. a big fan of, of giving them words of affirmation. When yeah. I see something awesome happening, 
right? If I see a developer coming off of a story that's going to give them story points to take a bug ticket for someone else because they're trying to be like give a selfless act of service, mm-hmm. that to me is merit for saying, hey, like I, I noticed this. This is really selfless of you. Thank you so much for doing this. This is this is really awesome. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm seeing those things, giving them the one-on-one and the words of affirmation directly to them is also helpful. However, I've seen that my team can gain influence in the organization if I'm giving words of affirmation about them to leadership. Mm. So I have a young developer on my team, super talented, and, and I talk to him um, daily about like his journey and his leadership growth and what he wants to accomplish. And then I also gave words of affirmation about him to our CTO. Mm. And I didn't see the the results or the fruits of that for several months, but then the CEO or CTO was trying to make a decision for the team. And I had given that developer enough influence to go to the CTO and say, Hey, I don't really agree with this. Can we, can we adjust this? Because I had given words of affirmation about that person to the CTO, I then gave that developer enough influence to go to that person and say, hey, I disagree. Can we wow. work out something else? Yeah. So that's it's really subtle, um, but it's crazy how powerful the words, thank you, I'm sorry, and I'm proud of you, I mm-hmm. believe in you, and I trust you really are, like, yeah. as long as they're genuine and they're not overused. If you use right. them appropriately and they're genuine... It's uh, it's a pretty, they're, they're super powerful. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Cause I mean, one of the biggest challenges, like I do see in organization is like developers, you know, even if a manager, like their direct manager is in the room, they're not able to share like so fully how they would want to share. So that's like, that's great that like a, a developer who's in a junior level was able to like have that conversation or just say, Hey, like, I don't think that's the right way to do it. Or here's my thoughts or my ideas, like going to a CTO. So kudos to you. That's great. Yeah. And I, I think one thing I've done well um, is I've always encouraged my team to speak up mm. for good or bad. Um, and, and a lot of times, actually, most of the time they'll ask me how to phrase something that they want to say. <laughs> because they respect the input, right? They're like, hey, you have a way with yeah. words. You know how to be empathetic. Can I run this by you? But I always mm-hmm. encourage them to be transparent because the, what I don't want to have happen is something negative um, that kind of comes down the pipe and they didn't have the opportunity to like speak up and intercept that before it happened. Because then, right. then you get the feelings of regret and remorse. It's like, no, I, I would rather have you speak up and try than just sit back and take something that, that falls downhill. Right, yeah. Yeah. Um... My next, the next thing I wanted to kind of pivot into maybe some of the advices for like, you know, other scrum masters out there in a way, uh, no matter what, what team, where you go, what organization you go into, there's, you're always going to have one or two challenging team members. I mean, every scrum masters that I've talked to, you know, come to me and say, there's just one person like, oh, like, you know, that's kind of making my job a little bit harder. Uh, and which is, you know, normal, like, there are, there's going to be resistance. There's, you know, people that don't want to change and things like that. So um, have you had a difficult team member? And if so, like, how have you handled things when there is a difficult team member? Yeah, there's a lot of nuances within that. Um, I think the reality is I know that I can't mentor everyone equally. Mm. Right. And what I've found is that influence between members of a team 
is going to be greater than my influence coming from like a management or a leadership perspective. So mm-hmm. even though I might not be able to mentor someone directly for whatever reason, um, you know, they're, they're very talented and they don't value my opinion. Maybe they have too big of an ego. Maybe they're just not willing to be vulnerable. Whatever the reason is, I, I truly believe that I can't physically and mentally mentor every single person because they just won't allow me the space to do that. Yeah. But if you find the most mentorable people on a team and mentor them, mm-hmm. teach them how to communicate, teach them how to collaborate and give them the tools. I found that sometimes they'll have a, um, a greater level of influence with their peers versus me coming one-on-one. Now for someone that just like, isn't self-aware enough to understand or even be open to that, it's really difficult. And, And I've had the spectrum I've had, you know, um, developers with really big egos that over time will let their guard down and will start asking for feedback and be more self-aware, which is super cool to see. Mm-hmm. But some of them don't, some of them just don't care. They don't want to improve. And, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I believe that again, you, you mentor the ones that you can, and then hopefully indirectly your mentorship comes through with the other members of the team that maybe you can't physically mentor directly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess follow up on that, like, do you have any team members or just like that one person, maybe like, you know, you're just facilitating different events, different meetings that just talks a little bit too much or just doesn't let other people share their opinion? Like, how do you handle that? What do you do? I think my preference is that I'd rather have a team that over communicates than under communicates Mm. because again, just my own experience, right? I can't speak to people that, you know, have had different experiences. I'm just speaking from the heart on this, but I feel like I can mold a team that over communicates. Right. And if, if they're at least at a minimum willing, even if it's a little bit brash and Mm -hmm. rough around the edges, if they're willing to speak their mind, Um, I have enough faith in my own abilities to build relationships where I can start to mold that into respect and chemistry Mm -hmm. versus trying to get a team that doesn't communicate at all and is very introverted and doesn't feel comfortable um, speaking up for whatever reason. I think that's harder for me to kind of elicit that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think also like you just have to use some facilitation. Mm Mm-hmm. At, at base, right? So one technique that I, that I like to use is this rule of four, yeah. um, that after you speak, um, it's just a working agreement, right? So I set the tone in the beginning of the meeting. Mm-hmm. I say, Hey, like, let's try a facilitation technique. Um, you know, after you speak four other people have to speak before you can <laughs> speak again. Right. And yeah, that's, I, like I that. don't, I, I honestly don't like doing that because that's really granular. I'd, I'd rather use something a little more subtle versus like mm-hmm. something Um, you know, more more aggressive like that, but I've had good results with it. And over time, the goal isn't to keep that in place. It's just to show, show someone that they're sharing a little bit too much or too often. Um, And then over time, like we can pull back and and be a little bit more light on the facilitation. I I think over time, the transition of being a facilitator isn't to facilitate aggressively indefinitely. Yeah. You might have to be there as a leader. And there's a little bit of an art within that of knowing when to speak and when not to speak. Yeah. But if a team is struggling and they're not communicating well, I don't think that it's effective to just sit back and let them struggle. <laughs> and and this part of that just is like about recognizing where they're at. 
um, and what they need in that moment and then helping them, mm -hmm. you know, work through that situation in a, a little bit of a case by case basis. Yeah, no, no I like that. Um, and I mean, you kind of answered the, the, the next question that I was actually going to ask you in that anyway. Um, but any other tips or any other like key points that you want to share um, as far as like being an effective facilitator? Any other things that you got under your belt? Yeah. Yeah, I think the the art of communication isn't just saying the right thing at the right time, mm -hmm. but it's also about not saying the wrong thing in a tempting moment. Mm. And and as a facilitator and as a especially as a scrum master and, and an agile coach, learning the art of when to speak and when not to speak isn't mm. an overnight process. Right. And and I think some of the breakthrough moments that I've had as a facilitator have been within those like five to 10 seconds of awkward silence <laughs> because yeah it's it's you I mean you know like if you've been um you know in those roles and and I know you've you've shared with me and on this stuff in the past it's like those five to ten seconds are painful they're mm -hmm. super painful nobody likes awkward silence but it's super ironic that yeah. after those 10 seconds someone speaks up yeah and, and then normally it's something that actually does add a lot of value. Mm -hmm. So I think a new facilitator will probably feel the need to jump in and facilitate, but an experienced <laughs> facilitator will be able to read that and say, I'm going to, I'm going to hold back and, yeah. and then see what happens. And touching back on your question of like, what's the learning the last 30 to 90 days, my teams now, um, the team specifically that I'm working with finally is able to communicate without my efforts, mostly. Mm -hmm. So right. retros, um, grooming events, backlog refinement sessions, I spent four to six months uh, pretty aggressively facilitating and giving them the tools to, to learn how to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Now it's the art of stepping back and allowing them the space to facilitate themselves. And they've been doing incredibly. Right. Um, but so I, do you I just let them? The first month or two. Right. Do you just like sometimes just let them like facilitate standups or different things? Like, have you yeah, started so, to do that? Okay. Yeah. So part of being a scrum master is having some charisma and like telling <laughs> jokes and keeping like the light atmosphere. So like one thing I've done recently is in standups, I'll, I'll, you know, say, Hey, thank you for volunteering to facilitate the standup today. <laughs> and of course they hadn't said anything. And then, and then they bring up the board and they walk through it. And it's a really cool opportunity to like, let the team communicate with each other without having me be there. But, yeah or like be, be facilitating actively. However, I, I definitely couldn't do that the first three, four five months. Right. Like I had to build those relationships. I had to be charismatic and set the tone and like lead by example for a little while. But mm -hmm. now that I have those fun late relationships built and the team is getting some chemistry, I can mess around with them like that. And, and it's kind of a cool little way to, to lighten the air in, in some of those more redundant standups. And um, in retrospectives too, I think I still have to be a facilitator and set the tone on the form of the oh, retro, yeah. right. right? You have to give them the board. You have to give them the topics and kind of set the tone. Um, mm -hmm. I learned about a power start, which is a technique um, to start meetings. And I think like using that is, is, a, is cool and, and it helps. Mm -hmm. But then in the retro, my goal is to speak as little as possible. Mm. And we've had two of our best retros yet in eight months, the last two weeks. And I haven't, or the last four weeks, and I haven't hardly had to talk at all. They're taking wow. their own action items. They're talking about what, I, what they want to do next sprint. They're talking about what, um, what went well and what didn't and what they want to adjust. 
so it's it's cool I'm like kind of shedding a, a hypothetical <laughs> tear here I'm like so proud of them um, yeah. but it took a long time the message is like it's not going to happen overnight you need to know when to be a facilitator and when to be a um, you know a, a passive observer so to speak yeah no I like that that's awesome um kind of want to get talk a little bit about coaching um I believe you know coaching does start with you as an individual person but a lot of I mean, it's never really about you, right? Um, so as you are growing in your Agile journey, what are you doing to become a better coach or, or mentor to your team and your organization? I think part of it is having the courage to have a crucial conversation. Mm. Because uh, I mean, my, my, one of my weaknesses, I think just naturally is that I don't like conflict. <laughs> so reading crucial conversations helped. And I, I think that's kind of molded my views on it, but also like setting up a, a conflict resolution meeting or dealing with that is not like a natural strength. I've had to work on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think over time as I've grown and as a coach is knowing how to work with each individual person in a very specific way, because the way that I coach and mentor one person might not be the way I mentor and coach someone else. Mm. And, and getting, I think part of that too, like foundationally, you have to have a relation, an individual relationship with everyone on your team. Mm-hmm. Like I ask them questions about their family. I know what they like to eat. I know what they like to do in their spare time. I took, I put a lot of effort and, and I invest a lot of time into getting to know them and showing them that I actually care about them as human beings Mm. and learning that about them and asking them questions about, you know, how do they like to be communicated with? What are some of their pet peeves? And then kind of the combination of their answers and their, their mannerisms in meetings and one-on-ones allows me kind of that, that space to, to get to know them on a deeper level. And then I tailor the mentoring and coaching around that, you know, one person um, on the team might value a lot more direct communication mm-hmm. whereas someone else in the team might want empathetic communication yeah um, you know another person on the team might come to me just to vent about things and they don't want input and I need to read that because if I try to give them mentorship or coaching when they're not ready for it or where they don't ask for it mm-hmm. I, I don't think that builds a relationship I think that that puts distance between the mentor and the mentee right. so knowing knowing and recognizing it when and if someone is even um, ready and willing to be mentored is again, a little bit of a skill that, um, I've definitely paid attention to the last two or three months, but it's been on my mind for several years. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, what advice would you have for someone who is maybe a new scrum master and going into their first scrum master role? Maybe just kind of looking back at even like your recent role or, you know, previous roles, like here's kind of what I did the first 60 days, 90 days, or first month that helped me become a good scrum master. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the motto. I I might've mentioned this earlier, but people don't care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. Yeah. So be patient. Um, You know, don't be afraid to take a step back and really understand where the team is at and what they need. Um, you know, my, on my mind pretty consistently that I, I try to reflect on is, well, what does the team need from me right now? 
Yeah. <laughs> what is the biggest thing holding them back? Mm -hmm. it, uh, maybe they have super strong product owners and, and there's, there's good communication between, you know, the product owners and the dev team, but maybe there's a breakdown of a dependency two teams over that's slowing right. us down. Right. How can I fix that problem? Um, and, and I, I think be patient with yourself or with <laughs> themselves. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, it's and the lastly, I think, yeah, I, I think part of it is too just like spend the time to develop yourself outside of your career. Mm. Cause again, I think that's, that's one of the things that I focused a lot on and it's helped me um, thrive in, in the nine to five role um, versus some of the peers that maybe haven't thrived as much as my, my dedication to actually growing myself and being a better person um, outside of like the nine to five hours. Yeah. Are there uh, maybe like, do you have a good, like, you know, three to four books maybe that you've, uh, you've read that has helped you become a good scrum master or a coach? Yeah, I think one of my favorites is How to Earn Friends and Influence People in the, in the Digital Age mm -hmm. by Dale Carnegie. Um, I think that's just a good, um, it's a good interpersonal book just in general. And I think yeah. whether you're dealing with like management and leadership or a peer and other scrum master, or you're dealing with your team, it's gonna give you a lot of the skills. It's gonna give anyone the skills to have more success in interpersonal relations. Mm -hmm. I think more on like the, the agile side, Coaching Agile Teams by Lisa Adkins is a, an incredible book. It's full of content. Yeah. Um, my book is, is marked up with highlighters and notes and <laughs> underlines and brackets. Uh, so working through that, I think will give a lot of tools as well. Crucial Conversations is a really good mm. addition to any library just to, to it is, yeah. have some tools in your back pocket of how to have difficult conversations. Because um, mm -hmm. I think as a leader, that's that's a good portion of the day is having difficult conversations with people. Yeah, yeah. Another good book that I've found is um, Retrospectives by, I, I believe, um, something Darby. I'll have to put that link out there. But um, they go through like the different stages of retrospective, like the five stages and the whole book is just on retrospective and how to like facilitate a, like a kick-ass retrospective. So, um, that's another good one to add to the list. Um, cool. Um, maybe we can talk about just a little bit more on like, what do you feel like are some of your strengths and weaknesses as a scrum master? Yeah. Yeah, I think the the ultimate strength, the, the superpower, so to speak, is just building an incredibly strong relationship with each member of the team. Mm. Um, whereas they've a lot, some of my teams have shared, you know, some pretty um, even traumatic events like in their past that they wouldn't tell anybody. And I think that uh, knowing that they're willing to be that vulnerable with me is a a really huge compliment. Um, yeah. But then when they open up, it's the reaction that is, is pretty powerful too, because I have to like be empathetic and sympathetic and um, intentionally think about what I say back. Yeah, it seems so, like you've really created that environment or really that space that we talk about creating that, you know, safe space for people, right? Like you've built a relationship, but also you've created that space. You know how to hold space for people and they can trust you and they can come to you for whatever situations there might be, seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, I, I asked my team, like, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think is the best option? I yeah. mean, and I think that's subtle, right? And then 
if they come to me with an idea, instead of trying to negotiate them out of it, even if it's maybe like not what my preference would be, just having the trust to say, I believe in you. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Try it. Like, yeah. I believe in your judgment. I trust your judgment. Like, go for it and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think a subtle thing that some people might not um, catch on to as a scrum master is focusing on finding out what they want to do and helping them get it done. So if, if they want to learn a specific type of code or a specific language, or they want to move up or they want to have career growth, right. Mm-hmm. Um, focusing on helping them get that done. I feel mm-hmm. like is a lot more effective strategy than trying to tell someone to do what they don't want to do. <laughs> and it's like subtle, but, but yeah. it's, it's pretty powerful. So finding out like what they want to learn and helping them get it done is, has allowed, again, one of those intangibles that I've used to gain influence in the team and build a relationship. And then over time, as that, that relationship is mutual, it's, it's very much back and forth on like a peer to peer level. So I think like the peer to peer relationship is what I've developed more so than like management to employee. Mm. And they've told me that, I mean, as I've developed the relationships, they've told me, my team has told me you know, many times that we don't think of you as a leader. We think of you as a peer that we have a lot of respect for. Mm. So it's kind of a cool dynamic to develop. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I, you know, I encounter or like I hear a lot of scrum masters out there. It's like, ha- or even teams, like whenever, like I went to an organization where the idea of retrospectives, like people cringed, like, oh, another retro. Like, I don't want to go to another retro. Um, and, you know, over time, like I- I've learned there are so many cool ways to like make those fun, engaging um, where people actually want to come. And I know earlier you talked about like you've had some very successful retros, maybe like last couple where, you know, you don't even do anything at this point or you're just more of an observer and people just have your team just kind of runs a show on their own. Um, I guess like what are some things that you did to get to that level maybe or, um, you know, how do you, how, what have you done to really make sure retros are fun, engaging and effective because you can have a retrospective and you can have, you know, you can talk about a few things, but like, I've also like have had teams that just talks about things, but then there's really not anything concrete that they can take back and like implement to get better. Right. Cause there's also like an art on facilitating and, and making it effective, um, that they do take out the action item and they know what they need to improve on and actually implement that. So like, maybe just talk about what, what have you done? Yeah, I think retrospectives are such a journey. Um, (laughs) And I think maybe one thing that I've done that's worked fairly well is just understanding what the pulse of the team is like in the moment, Mm. right? I mean, is a a traditional retro even the right decision? (laughs) Are they even in the frame of mind to like go through a retro? And maybe they're not. And that's okay. Like I've done, I've done a lot of different types of retros that weren't even retros. You know, like if they, if, if they've just had an amazing sprint and they've delivered and they feel good about it and, um, you know, they set a new record for velocity or they had some breakthrough as a team. Mm. Well, I don't necessarily want to go into a retro and talk about all the things that they need to improve. Mm. Like, so I've had that happen and I've done a celebration retro 
There you go. Well, we just talk about all the amazing things that we did the last two weeks. Um, mm. You know, we've done affirmation retros where I'll have everyone on a list and then everyone on the team has to give an, a positive affirmation to someone else on the team. Right. And then we read those and we go, and we go through those and it's a really cool way for the team to bond. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, like the goal is to turn them more into like the inspect and adapt right. ceremonies that they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So looking back now, the patience I had in the, in the, the retros up front, up front by saying, okay, maybe this isn't the right decision yet. Like, let's wait, let's do a celebration retro. Let's, um, give the team sometimes I think the team just needs to have space to vent and talk yeah. about what went wrong and like I don't it what was kind of like ironic is that some of the earlier retros were the best communication and collaboration the team had ever done like they were so mad at the organization that they finally dropped their walls and they were just like we're talking to each other about <laughs> what went wrong and they weren't yeah. blaming each other but they was just like a good vent session to get everything out in the open so I mean, it didn't make me super thrilled at the time to like see that, but over time, as they, as the team chemistry grew, the dynamic improved, um, and I experimented with different retro formats and different topics and different, um, you know, ways to go about having like a fun retro that's still productive. The mm-hmm. um, the team started to mature. Yeah. And now that we've like gone through some of that crap in the past. We can have good retros. I don't have to facilitate so much and they can just kind of lead it. And and now that they like have some confidence in themselves, they're more open to like making some adjustments because they're not so focused on just doing damage control. Right. Yeah. And I, I think uh, to, to add to your note, I mean, a lot of times people just like look at it, like a lot of scrum masters I've seen, um, just maybe look at it as like another meeting. Um, and, you know, depending on where your team is at, it's really not just another meeting. It, I believe like if you're conducting a an hour retro, like you should spend probably like two hours prepping for that. And a lot of times if, if you're not doing that, then it's like the same retro over and over again. It's like what went well, what didn't go well, like how can we be better, right? It's the same format over and over again. Because I mean, I remember like just spending couple of hours just hey like what can I do like does my team like do they need a, a little bit more of an energizer like are they at a point where they're maybe not you know m- maybe more uh they're not collaborating as much or I don't see that team spirit so do we need to do like a team building activity should we just like go out like obviously when it was in person should we go out and get some coffee and just sit at a coffee table and like just chat right so so I think the idea behind it is like, can you spend spend some time? Can you become creative? Can you implement something new? Can you experiment? Um, you know, can you try something, some of the stuff that you, you talked about, right? Like really feeling the pulse. Like if a team is doing great and like they delivered well and the sprint went great, like, yeah, no need to sit there and talk about like, what can they do better? <laughs> like go and celebrate, like have, a, like have lunch or like have a whatever. Um, have some drinks, I don't know, whatever, whatever they need. So um, I think that's, um, that's great. Yeah. And that's not to say that you can't do a retrospective on the retrospective. Right. I've heard, I've heard some people in the past do that. Um, and it's cool to see like how, when you actually do a retro on the retro, what, what feedback comes to how to improve it. Yeah. 
Well, cool. This was a very fun convo. Looks like uh, the camera battery is about to die. Also, I'm getting a <laughs> getting a notification done, a notification there. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming out, Adam. I had a blast chatting with you, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to get impacted uh, just by listening to this podcast. Any last moment or last minute things? Any last tips that you want to share before this camera really dies? No, I think just the biggest takeaway is. It, um be a learner, have a yeah. learner spirit, be humble, stay humble. You never know it all. Um, and stay involved in like agile communities because someone's going to have a good idea that you haven't come up with before. And I think yeah. the best agilists uh, really do a, a pretty intentional um, job and do a great job of, of networking and taking those ideas from other people and implementing in their own perspectives. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great advice. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah.